Hello everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Brown People Problems, a podcast where your host, I, Nikita, sit down with guests to chat about what it's like to navigate life while being brown. So for today's episode, it's just me, myself, and I, and I'm bringing you part two of How to Raise a Feminist, which is also a book discussion of A Feminist Manifesto or Dear Ijeawale by Chimamanda Adichie. Now, if you haven't already seen the first episode um, in this little series, check it out. I'll have it linked um, down below as well as here for you. Um, Or you may choose to continue with this one. That's your call. But for today's episode, we're going to be going through Chimamanda Adichie's Dear Ijeawele book and looking at suggestions number eight to suggestion 15 on how to raise a feminist. Now, just a bit of recap from the first version of this series. Um, This book was written by uh, Chimamanda Adichie, who is a really famous activist. Um, Check her out if you haven't already. We're a really famous activist and essentially her friend reached out to her with suggestions on how she could um, raise a feminist daughter, hence the book. So it's very small, it's a handful of pages, and there's no chapters in it or anything, it's just all one continuous chapter. And it briefly touches on 15 different ways we can help women, uh, or we can help raise, we can help raise the next generation with more of a focus on equality and equity. All right, so let's get into it. So suggestion number eight, um, and we're gonna start with the eighth one because in the last episode, we chatted about suggestions one to seven. So suggestion number eight, teach her to reject likability. Her job is not to make herself likable. Her job is to be her full self, a self that is honest and aware of the equal humanity of other people. And again, right off the bat, right? So, so simple, (laughs) so simple, but so, so, so powerful. Um, Being likable is um, a trait that I think is really, really present in how we socialize young women as a society and particularly how we socialize young, many young brown women, right? In, In the larger brown culture. Now, as is with the theme of every episode of this podcast, I do like to say that we're not making any gross generalizations about the larger South Asian community. Please keep in mind that there's so, so, so much variation and there's so many different cultures and groups and and whatnot in the larger South Asian demographic. But for the purposes of this episode, um, we're going to be talking about them as one. Uh, We honor their differences and those exist, but for the purpose of this episode, we're going to be chatting about the similarities that can be present across these different groups. So this suggestion about likability, I would be curious to know how, if there's any brown women listening, how do you feel about that? How do you feel about that word? Because one of the phrases that so many of us remember from our childhoods is, oh, she's such a good girl and praise for being a good girl, which is usually just associated for a lot of brown women with being silent or being um, easygoing or being helpful. 
gets really enmeshed in our identities. It's interesting, there's actually a lot of research now coming out in child development around praise, which talks about um, how what we praise children for uh, has the ability to shape their sense of self-worth. Now, praise is obviously a good thing, but in, as you can imagine, if we praise a child for just the outcome of a task, they may come to associate their sense of self-worth with the ability to win a competition or get good grades or any outcome right? versus praising someone for their effort for the progress regardless of the outcome can be a different scenario as you can imagine but regardless i think when we start to praise little girls for um being so easygoing or being so quiet they can internalize that they have to be likable and that can become a dangerous territory Amanda talks about this is dangerous because many sexual predators have capitalized on this. Many girls remain silent when abused because they want to be nice. Many girls spend too much time trying to be nice to people who do harm to them. And many girls think of the feelings of those who are hurting them because we are taught to be super empathic. And so we have a world full of women who are unable to exhale fully because they have for so long been conditioned to fold themselves into shapes and make themselves likable and I thought that was that was really really spot on and so what Chimamanda talks about is instead of teaching daughters to be likable teach them to be honest and teach them to be kind that they should never have to feel like they have to stay silent in order to maintain approval right in order to maintain peace and I think we see this a lot with a lot of younger brown women. Um, you know, you may have felt a lot of guilt at sharing your needs because you don't want to rock the boat. You maybe feel a lot of fear around, for example, creating boundaries because you want to stay likable or you don't like conflict. And I think that is a really prominent way in which this shows up. And so how do we do this practically, right? So Chimamanda talks about how praise um, your daughter when she's brave, praise her when she's kind, uh, praise her when she takes a stand that's difficult and, and unpopular because it happens to be her honest position. Tell her that kindness matters. Praise her when she's kind to other people, but teach her that her kindness must never be taken for granted. Absolutely. For example, if another child takes her toy without her permission, ask her to take it back because her consent is important and not let the other child keep it because she wants to be likable or because it's the right thing to do. All right, suggestion number nine, give her a sense of identity. It matters and be deliberate about it. Teach her parts of your culture, they're beautiful, and teach her to reject parts of the culture that are not. And I love that because I think we see, a lot of us can see culture as this rigid, static box that we need to squeeze ourselves into. When actually our relationship with culture can be a lot more fluid than that. It can be a lot more dynamic. It is okay to negotiate with our culture. It is okay to say, I love these aspects about my ethnic culture. But here's a couple of things that don't really resonate with me. And I think that type of um, flexibility can be great. And uh, I, I think that if we don't allow for that flexibility, 
we can run the danger of someone again having to feel like they have to squeeze themselves into definition of a culture because that's just what culture is and they may then feel caught between what authentically feels right to them uh what are their authentic values and the need again for approval and likability because identity development you know it's it, it it doesn't come about from being squeezed into a box it it's an explorative process right where we engage in what we like what we don't like what makes sense to us what are our values i thought that was a really lovely suggestion suggestion number 10 be deliberate about how you engage with her and her appearance again love that i think super relevant to many different groups around the world but especially around the larger South Asian culture um, and the brown culture. Um, unfortunately, you know, there, there can be in some communities a lot of anti-dark attitudes and beliefs. And so we can make girls really conscious about how they look and almost make them really preoccupied with looking fair. Um, or creating this fear of getting dark. She talks about how studies show that girls generally stop playing sports as puberty arrives because breasts and self-consciousness can get in the way of sports. Please try not to let that get in her way. Absolutely agree with this, right? I think we can make young girls really conscious about their bodies. We can teach them to start hiding their bodies. You know, don't, don't walk like that. Don't jump like that. Don't sit like that. And... The danger with that is not only are we creating a culture of fear in young girls, but we're teaching them that their bodies need to be policed for so as to not excite boys around them. And I think that's the start of a slippery slope. I like this particular distinction uh, Chimamanda makes. She says, if she likes makeup, let her wear it. If she likes fashion, let her dress up. But if she doesn't like either, let her be. Don't think that raising her feminist means forcing her to reject femininity. Feminism and femininity are not mutually exclusive. It's misogynistic to suggest that they are. Sadly, women have learned to be ashamed and apologetic about pursuits that are seen as traditionally female, such as fashion and makeup. But our society does not expect men to feel ashamed of pursuits considered generally male, like sports, cars, and certain professional sports. Love, 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 love that. I think there was a time personally in my own kind of identity development where somehow, somewhere along the way, I had learned that Oh, I can't like pink. If I'm going to be a feminist, I can't like pink. You know, pink is for um, women who love traditional gender roles. And a big part of understanding my own feminist values has been letting myself feel that it's okay to like pink, to like purple. It doesn't make me less of a feminist. It's okay to want to be feminine. There's nothing wrong with that. It's okay to want to dress up it's okay to want to remove the hair on my body it does not make me anti-feminist because this looks different for everyone there's another part where she talks about here never link your daughter's appearance with morality never tell her that a short skirt is immoral make dressing a question of taste and attractiveness instead of a question of morality now for all of my brown girls listening i want you to reflect on if 
or I want you to reflect on what you were taught to feel about clothes. What were you taught constituted as, you know, um, how a good girl dresses, how do girls from good families dress versus the opposite, which I guess is girls from bad families. I don't always understand that. Um, but I think there's so much morality associated with how we teach girls to or not to dress. And again, teaching them that their morality somehow is associated with their bodies. And I know this is a major flaw of, again, the larger South Asian culture. And again, there's a lot of variability, but in the larger sort of trend that we see is this. 11th suggestion, teach her to question your culture's selective use of biology as reasons for social norms. We often use biology to explain the privileges that men have, the most common reason being men's physical superiority. It is of course true that men are in general physically stronger than women, but if we truly depended on biology as a root of social norms, then children would be identified as their mothers rather than their fathers, because when a child is born, the parent we are biologically and incontrovertibly certain of is the mother, not the father because it comes out of the mother, not coming out of the father. We assume the father is who the mother says the father is. How many lineages all over the world are not biological, I wonder. And that suggestion, you know, made me really chuckle. And I think, again, in societies that are more, that stick more to traditional gender roles, we see a lot of this. Uh, we see a lot of privileges being afforded to certain genders because just of their gender. If you, go back and uh, listen to the first episode of this there was a a really great part about uh, raising your child um, together as partners uh, and Chimamanda talks about how that's really important because here's the thing when it comes to child rearing men are able to do every single thing that's associated with child rearing that is that biology allows except for breastfeeding because biology doesn't allow that so there should be no excuses to not engage in child rearing so that one really made me laugh and with this one as well it makes me chuckle but it really makes me think about how children when they're born they belong to the father and how we see that is through last names right and friends that is that is a discussion, a long, lengthy discussion that I could go on and on and on about at some day, but um, that's one of the main ways where we identify children as being their fathers. Another thing she talks about is we use evolutionary biology to explain male promiscuity, but not to explain female promiscuity, even though it really makes evolutionary sense for women to have many sexual partners. The larger the genetic pool, the greater the chances of bearing offspring who will thrive. That's a really good point because she talks about how social norms are created by human beings and there's no social norm that cannot be changed. And remembering that evolutionary biology was, guess what, interpreted by a certain demographic of men, right? So I'm gonna leave it at that. All right, 12th suggestion. Talk to her about sex and start early. It will probably be a bit awkward but it's necessary. This is a, a duh, this is a really common one, um, but not any less important. Again, for my brown girls listening, 
or other women of color who are listening, I want you to think about what your sex talk looked like. Did you even have one? Did you have someone sit you down in your family and explain to you what is a sexual relationship? What is consent? Probably not. And if you did, you're super, super lucky. And even if you did receive that education, the person giving it to you, were they awkward? Were they making sex seem like a bad, immoral thing? Was that what the conversation was about? Or was it about your safety? That's something to think about. There's a lot of shame that's present with being a woman. She says that with her with your daughter, don't pretend that sex is merely a controlled act of reproduction or only a marriage act because it is disingenuous. Tell her that sex can be a beautiful thing and that apart from the obvious physical consequences, it can also have emotional consequences. Tell her that her body belongs to her and her alone, that she should never feel the need to say yes to something she does not want or something she feels pressured to do. Teach her that saying no when no feels right is something to be proud of. Again, a lot of this seems like such common knowledge, right? But if you're hearing the same thing that I'm hearing in this is the narrative of empowerment. I'm not hearing a narrative of fear. I'm hearing a narrative of empowerment where you're teaching, where, you, where we're teaching girls their bodies are their own. Because remember, when I was talking about with a couple uh, suggestions ago, Talking about when we teach girls to be really like ashamed or really conscious of their bodies, we're teaching them that their bodies aren't theirs. Their bodies are immoral. And that understanding intersecting with a lack of uh, sexual uh, training or sexual knowledge and a lack of conversation around consent can't be a fun mix. Most childhood development experts say it is best to have children call sexual organs by their proper biological names, vagina and penis. I agree, but that is a decision you have to make. You should decide what name you want her to call it, but it what, what matters is that there must be a name and it cannot be a name that is weighed down with shame. I love that. The language around women's bodies can be associated with a lot of shame. Suggestion number 13, romance will happen, so be on board. I'm writing this assuming your daughter is going to be heterosexual. She might not be, obviously, but I'm assuming that because it is what I feel best equipped to talk about. Make sure you are aware of the romance in her life, and the only way you can do that is to start very early and give her the language with which to talk to you, not only about sex, but also about love. And... I think about the suggestion and I think about the relationship that a lot of brown girls have with their moms. And I, I, I know there's certainly a lot of young brown women out there who have a really close relationship with their moms or they feel uh, really kind of safe in telling their moms or their parents about their romantic pursuits. but. I'm gonna say that more often than not, brown daughters are terrified of bringing any of that up um, because it's not a conversation that has been normalized. Romance has been seen as bad and icky, right? Again, I want you to think about 
when you were growing up and you were watching TV and a kissing scene came on or a romantic scene came on the TV, what did your parents do? Fumble and be frazzled and try to change the channel, right? There's no conversation around it and how actually that's quite normal. Um, but what's again important is context and boundaries. Suggestion number 14. In teaching her about oppression, be careful not to turn the oppressed into saints. Saintliness is not a prerequisite for dignity. People who are unkind and dishonest are still human and still deserve dignity. When I read this the first time, I think I... I struggled with that a little bit because I'd never heard it laid out like that. And I'm going to go ahead and repeat it for everyone here. And I want you to notice a reaction that comes up for you within your body. Quote, in teaching her about oppression, be careful not to turn the oppressed into saints. Saintliness is not a prerequisite for dignity. People who are unkind and dishonest are still human and still deserve dignity, unquote. I wonder how that feels for, for anyone right now who is listening to this, but it felt like it just didn't fit for me. I think a lot of us are kind of trained to see the world in a very black and white fashion and nothing about this is black and white. She talks about how in the general discourse around some, in, uh, she talks about how in the general discourse around gender, there can be this assumption that women are like morally better than men, but they're not. Women are as human as men are. There is female goodness. There is male goodness. There is female evil. There is male evil, and female misogyny also exists. And I think this suggestion really fosters a lot of that flexible thinking and the creative thinking that we were talking about. And lastly, suggestion number 15. Quote, teach her about difference. Make difference ordinary. Make difference normal. Teach her not to attach value to difference. And the reason for this is not to be fair or to be nice, but merely be human and practical because difference is the reality of our world. And by teaching her about difference, you are equipping her to survive in a diverse world." Unquote. Again, I'm hearing a lot of flexibility. I'm hearing a lot of um, critical thinking here in the suggestion, right? That difference is normal, difference matters, whether it's in how people see the world and people's value systems, and that that's okay. But she talks about this does not mean that you teach your daughter to not have opinions, right? That it's okay to have your own opinions, and you know that her opinions come from an informed humane and broad-minded place but then there's also people who can have different opinions and again sounds very simplistic when i say it out loud but i think that's very very important and again a lot of us may not have had that like direct learning about some of these values so that's it folks those are 15 suggestions I, this is probably one of my favorite nonfiction books of all time. Very quick to read, 60 pages, and it's just packed with so much value, so many interesting things, so many values to think about that, you know, when it comes to maybe being parents, and again, you know, this is not, I'm not a parenting expert, um, please 
know that I'm not a parenting expert, but I think parents can become very preoccupied and rightfully so with like the right like diet for their children, the creating the right sort of um, um, schedule and stimulation and stimulating environment for their children. That's really, really lovely. But I think one part that a lot of brown parents can miss in their pursuit of everything else is some of this like value-based exploration. And you don't have to be a parent to engage in this. I just, I got this 10 years ago, I'm not a parent. Um, but I really enjoyed going through this because it made me really do a lot of reflect, uh, reflection on my own development um, of my values, right? The evolution of my own values, what I thought was important. How do I engage with things like likability um, and privilege and inequality? And so if this interests you, definitely let me know. Let me know your thoughts. Let me know um, by sharing this episode and write to me. I would really love to hear from you. And if you enjoyed these sorts of in-depth dives of some nonfiction books, um, and we talk about them in the context of the larger, you know, brown culture and brown people problems, let me know. I would be happy to do more of these because trust me when I say that I have a ton of books. Actually, the next topic that I'm thinking of is intergenerational trauma. If that interests you, like what is what is intergenerational trauma? What does it look like in the brown community? Let me know. Let me know by commenting and I will incorporate that. Thank you everyone for joining me on this little series. Again, please engage with part one of this if you haven't already. Um, and I appreciate you being here with me, listening to this, um, engaging with the podcast and uh, my videos. I appreciate you and I will see you in my next one. Stay tuned for the disclaimer, everyone. See you next time. The guest and the host of Brown People Problems do not offer individualized therapeutic or medical advice and our conversations should not be interpreted as such. This podcast is not a replacement for therapy. This podcast exists for educational purposes only. Please consider your circumstances and engage with the content mindfully.